So maybe before we get into the teaching, let's just, um, y'all ever been, are you ever in situations where there's like a big elephant in a room and nobody talks about it? Yeah, that's fun, isn't it? I love that. So let's maybe, um, this is not necessarily an elephant, but let's just address worship for a second because um, it can be a little awkward at times, right? Because um, it's all based on how intimate our relationship with, with Jesus is. And so if you're in a place where you're not really intimate with Jesus and you're around people who are, it's like watching somebody kiss. If, I mean, if we're honest, it's like you watch somebody make out going, that's a little creepy. I don't quite know what to do with that. And so, you know, all of us, a lot of us can relate to being in situations where you're, you're kind of told to do something. Okay, we, let's all stand together. Let's all raise our hands. Let's all close our eyes. Let's all, whatever. you know, you're told, told, told. But isn't it great when you're in a relationship and you don't have to be told what to do? Hey, husbands, isn't it great when your wife doesn't have to tell you what to do? Isn't it awesome? I mean, some of us are still kind of waiting on that day. But for me, I can say with Wendy, hey, Wendy. Yeah, she's the great-looking woman right there. That There's times that we're sitting on the couch, and I look over at Wendy, and here's what I think. She loves me? Like, is she blind? Is she stupid? I mean, she, she like, willingly hitched her life with mine. And a lot of times... What we want to see happen with you guys in worship, okay? We're, we don't, man, I love to worship. We are just, man, it's one of our passions here at the gathering. It's not so that you have to stand there for three or four or five songs or whatever and feel uncomfortable. It's so that you start to feel drawn into the love and presence of God. And the way I feel about Wendy, how many times can we just close our eyes and think to ourselves, wait a minute, God, you love me? And when that starts to overwhelm you, suddenly worship's not about what, what, are they, what are we doing now, right? And it becomes much more just an, a natural response to Jesus. And all my years hanging out with teenagers, I used to tell them all the time, any old fool can fake worship. Anybody can clap. Anybody can throw their hands up. But you know where you can't fake worship is right here. You can't fake it on, in, your, in your eyes, on your face. Because you've been at restaurants, right? You've watched the couple that sits there and the wife's talking and the, the, the man looks like he's listening, but he's watching ESPN on the TV right behind her. You can't fake it here, okay? And so we're not about pressuring you. We don't want you to feel like you have to do a certain thing, but I, I can guarantee you this. If you're with us over any amount of period of time, you're going to start to feel drawn into this relationship with Jesus where you just kind of go, I've never thought about, like the Bible talks about raising your hands. I might actually do that. Not because I'm suddenly, you know, perfect or like I just walked in the spirit of Billy Graham jumped on me and so I raised my hands. <laughs> Not just because I just want, I just love you, Jesus. I just want to be with you. Just me and you right now. Yeah, it's a little bit awkward if you're not there yet, okay? And we, we know that. So I'm just saying that so you can kind of feel a little bit at ease. Okay, make sense? Everybody say, yeah, good, because I can stop talking about it. All right. So if you've got your Bibles, um, and I don't even know if you have a sheet to take notes on because I'm sure we ran out a long time ago. But this is our second week in our Undeniable series, okay? And um, just to recap, last week we talked about undeniable association. And we, we said this, that the undeniable acts of God through us have everything to do with our undeniable association with Him. In other words, if you're not undeniably with Jesus, 
he can't do undeniable things through you in this county, in, in your life, in your family, where you work, where you go to school. So it's all about that association with Jesus, okay? So today we're talking about undeniable transformations. And I want you to know this right up front, that our culture is 100% committed to transformation. Since 2000, cosmetic surgery is up 232%. I was thinking about that. I'm totally in the wrong profession. Totally. I mean, I wouldn't be a good surgeon, you know, because I've got a little bit of a southern accent, and you don't want to have a southern accent if you're a surgeon. You see, what we're going to do here is we're going to cut you open. You've got to sound dignified, right? But, man, 232%. Um, some of the more popular procedures, butt lifts, tummy tucks, thigh lifts. I mean, I look good now, but can you imagine me if I got a butt lift and yeah, it's, it's probably better if you don't imagine that at all, right? <laughs> Somebody said something, but I don't even know what it was. I don't know. Oh, I have to have a butt. <laughs> okay. Up 61% from last year alone. The next greatest wave of cosmetic surgery is calf augmentation. So people are going in and they're having procedures done to make their calves look perfect. I, I don't want you looking at my calves. I'm not messing with that. And, of course, the biggest procedure in the last 10 years is Botox, which is just fun to say. Just look at your name and go, Botox. Isn't that fun to say? Here's how much Botox is up. In the last 10%, Botox is up 1,563%. Annually, Americans spend $10 billion on cosmetic surgery. What bad economy? I can't make my house payment, but I'm going to get me a tummy tuck. Okay. $10 billion. The point is not necessarily to make a statement about whether it's good or bad to get plastic surgery. Just to make the point that as a society... We are committed to transformations. We are. We're committed to spending money on it. Um, I've watched, oh my goodness, you want to ever be grossed out. You ever seen a, um, a liposuction procedure on TV? Like, they're just like ramming that stuff up in there. And it's like the vacuum cleaner's up in your belly, sucking out the fat. And it's just like, no wonder they're sore. It's just, ugh, it's creepy. We'll endure any amount of pain. We'll pay money just to have a transformation. What was surprising to me was um, I went to Google. And, and, I, I, and I do, um, I use Google a lot, and I, I Googled undeniable transformation. And I was a little scared. You ever get apprehensive on Google? Because certain things you put in, you don't know what's going to come up. So like undeniable transformation, what's the image going to be for that? The number one image on Google for undeniable transformation is, got it? Is that, isn't that sweet? I'll just bend down so you can see it. It's a butterfly. And I was expecting like calf augmentation, you know. <laughs> Some woman going, check out my calf. You just don't quite know. But the number one Google image return for that that search is something that man has nothing to do with. No amount of trying, no matter how smart you are, you cannot pull that off. You can't make something beautiful come out of something that was just nasty and grubby and crawling on the ground. So today we're talking about transformations, undeniable transformations. I'm going to give you all three of them and then... You can write what you want after that. 
Here's the three transformations that cannot be denied. 100% undeniable. Number one is darkness to light. Number two is debt to liberty. Number three is death to life. You've probably been in arguments before with people where you're trying to convince them of something, and they're trying to convince you that what you're saying is not true, and that's what deniable and undeniable is all about. But these three things, these are three transformations that cannot be denied. Things going from darkness to light cannot be denied. Um, you know, real simple proof of that is every morning when I wake my kids up, right? And they're sleeping in a nice dark room. And I walk in and go, hey, good morning, flip on the light switch. And what do they do? Make the face. Oh, 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 covers are flying over their head. It's just, you know, it's like you think that you are sticking them with needles. Like it's painful. But you can't see in that moment. They can't deny it, can they? They cannot deny that light just entered that room. Darkness to light. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. This is a story of um, Saul when he's going to Damascus to persecute the believers. And he gets knocked off of his horse. He's blinded. He goes to spend some time in Damascus. Paul was, uh, Saul was a persecutor. He didn't deny the fact that he was opposing Jesus. He, as a matter of fact, in Acts 26, 9 through 11, he talks about that. He actually is part of his testimony. Yeah, I used to oppose Jesus. He was 100% in darkness. It was part of his reputation. Verses 13 to 14 say that. That's how people knew him. Oh, Saul, the guy that persecutes Christians. He was 100% in the darkness. He was on the wrong side of Matthew 12:30, which says this. Matthew 12:30 says, Jesus said, if you're not with me, then you are against me. No middle line. You're with me or you're against me. So he was on the wrong side of that. His transformation was so undeniable because he was so undeniably in the darkness. So three days he's blind. One man, who's the meanest guy you can think of in your life? Just picture him right now. The meanest person in your life. The last person that you would ever want to go and talk to. Well, I'm sitting right next to him. Let's hope not. This is a guy named Ananias. And Jesus says to Ananias, hey, go and pray for Saul. And he's like, there's no way I want to go pray for Saul because he's totally in the dark. He's here to kill people, persecute people. If I go pray for him, he's going to arrest me. He's obedient. He goes. He prays for him. And the Bible says in verse 18, if you're in Acts chapter 9, verse 18, it says this. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Immediately, immediately, he goes from darkness into light. Think about people in your life, maybe yourself. People who have been changed by Christ. Who went, you, you, you think, man, there's no way I could deny that. They went from darkness to light. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16 says this. It's not enough just to change. It's got to be visible change. Jesus said, you are light. No one hides that light. But you let it shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What does he want for us? He wants us to shine before men. He wants them to see our good deeds. He wants people to praise him because of it. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 12 says that faith is not, believe it or not, you ever heard somebody say, my faith is personal? You ever heard that? Faith is not meant to be personal. 
It's meant to be personally proclaimed. It's got to be in you so you can live it in front of men. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 12. It says that we're supposed to declare the praises of God who brought us from darkness into light. We're supposed to live transformed lives in front of lost people. We're supposed to live in such a way that even when they accuse you, you got people that are your enemies. What's the worst thing anybody's ever said about you? Oh, man, we don't have time, do we? Even when they say bad things about you, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 to live in such a way that even when they say bad things, they still have to turn around and glorify your Father in heaven because they see so undeniably the change in your life. Because darkness can't deny light. Just jot down under the, the number one, John chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what it says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that what happens? Light shines in our lives, and people cannot overcome it. They can talk about it all day long. They can say, well, I don't even like Phil. But they can't deny that what happened in his life is real. They can't deny that darkness was there at one point, and now he's in light. Darkness cannot overcome light. Number two, debt to liberty. Um, I, when we hear the word debt, we think of money, right? And I, I found on YouTube, you want to show it, this great clip. I don't know if you remember this commercial or not from a couple years back. I've got a four-bedroom house in a great community. Like my car? It's new. I even belong to the local golf club. How do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I can barely pay my finance charges. Somebody help me. Come to Good old Stanley Johnson. I love that commercial. That was only a few years ago. When we think of debt to liberty, of course we think of money right away. And the reason's because, I don't know if you know this or not, but the average household debt, for, for households, some of you don't even have debt, you don't use credit cards. For the average house that does, $16,000 is what they owe. It's a lot of money. So when we think debt to liberty, we automatically start thinking about money. I don't want you to think about money only today. There is some truth to it. You can just jot down underneath number two, Proverbs 22, 7. It says that the borrower is slave to the lender. But it's not just about money, is it? No. Mark chapter 5 is where we'll be for this one. Mark chapter 5. When we think about debt today, I want you to think about slavery. Not from our country's history, but from what we're slaves to. I mean, some of us, we are in debt. Maybe not financially but we're in debt because we're slaves to something mark chapter 5 is this fantastic story about pigs and a guy that's demon possessed he lives in a cemetery it's a great story to tell your kids at night right i got this story about a cemetery and a man that lives there and he's always slobbering and he's going crazy his head spins around like that he lives among the tombs that's what the bible says 
He's demon-possessed. Two things to note right away about this guy. Starting in verse chapter 5, verse 3. It says, this man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him, even with a chain. He had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Not in day among the tombs. And in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. He was the crazy man in the cemetery. Here's two things to know about this guy. Number one, he was possessed. Number two, he was free, apparently, but really he wasn't. Imagine that. It says right there that nobody could chain him. They'd put chains on him and he would break free. We can relate to that. Appearing to be free. Nobody could subdue him, but he was subdued. I mean, we try to be like that all the time. We try to act like we are free from things, but they've got us. If you had asked people in that town, um, hey, this guy, do you think that he's free? They just said, well, apparently because we keep putting these chains on him and he keeps busting out. But when you read what the Bible says about him, he wasn't free because he kept living in a cemetery. He kept doing the same things he'd always done. He was possessed by demons. It is possible to appear free when you are not. And we live in a culture where we are in debt to things. We are addicted to things. When I read about this man, I think of two groups of people. I think of people who know they aren't free and people who think they aren't in debt. This is Stanley County, so we have, what, a million churches in our area? And th this morning, they're all full of people who can't fathom the idea that they could possibly be in debt to anything. They're convinced that they're already free. Sometimes I'm convinced I'm already free, but when I stop and look at my life, I relate to the man in the tombs. I might look free, but, man, things still have a hold on me. Let me ask you this question. This morning, what has a hold on you? What are you in debt to? If it's not Capital One, then what is it? I spend time with people who are addicted to things. You know what I know about people that are addicted? They're the first ones typically to tell you that they're addicted. But they're hopeless. They'll tell you right away, I, I, I just can't, I can't stop drinking. I can't stop smoking. I can't stop whatever. We always think of alcohol and drugs when it's addiction, but I mean, what are you addicted to? I used to be addicted to Gamecock football, but then I started watching the games. Not so sure anymore. Maybe you're addicted to food. It's, you know, you could be addicted to lying. You could be addicted to porn. We're addicted to all kinds of things. The question is, do we know it? Are we willing to admit it? And do we really believe that there's hope from those addictions? This man in the tombs, I've got to believe that he spent his days and his nights. Why does it say that he was always crying out? Because he's always crying out, is there any way for me to get free? People, they come and they bind me up and I keep breaking out. I know I've got strength. I don't know where it comes from, but I can't get free from what's inside of me. 
Sometimes religion's all about externally. Man, the last thing we want for you to do here is to walk in here on Sundays and feel like you've got to step out of your car, come in this door, put a smile on your face, and say, it's great to see you. Because then you're Stanley Johnson on the riding mower going, somebody help me. You look beautiful, but you know you're dying. That's not the plan of God for you. And here's what I want you to understand. That's a deniable transformation. People might look at you and think that we look different, but when they really start to peel the layers back, they'll suddenly say things like this, oh, that can't be real. When I first got saved, I went to tell my girlfriend that I got saved. And in the process of telling her that I got saved, we started making out. This is weird. And in the process of making out, I'll never forget this as long as I live. I tell her, I just got saved. I just gave my heart to Jesus. I'm changed. I'm changed. And then we start making out. And in the process of making out, she looks at me and she said these words. I thought Christians didn't do this. That, that cut me. That's a deniable transformation. I'm going to ask you the question. Can people look at your life? And it's not about earning your salvation. Can they look at your life? And can they easily dismiss what you say Jesus has done? Because they can so obviously see that you're still addicted to other things. It's a hard question to ask. Undeniable transformation from debt to liberty. Romans 6 talks about our relationship with sin as being in slavery. It's important to see that what we fight against in his case is demonic possession, in our case is sin. I don't say that to call you out. Let's just be honest, right? Let's just be honest that we all struggle with things in our lives. And at the end of the day, if we could ask Jesus anything, it would probably start with, Jesus, could you fix, could you take away, and we don't say, could you take away the person who's driving me crazy, could you take away my, my desire for whatever that is? And I'm telling you today, God does that. He does that. I don't understand it, but he does it. The transformation from debt to liberty can't be denied. The people of the town saw the difference. Verse 15 says this. We're in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, it says, When they came to Jesus, meaning the people from the town, they saw the man who had been possessed by the demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I love that. You know, we always think that they're going to be like, that's awesome. Man, we were, we were hoping you could be changed. But now, all they knew was he was a crazy man in the tombs. Probably his... I mean, it makes a point to say that he was dressed and in his right mind, which makes me think that all the times that I've seen him before, he was probably naked and not in his right mind, right? He's the naked, crazy man from the cemetery. And they heard something, probably a bunch of pigs squealing, because the Bible says that they went flying over the cliff. They heard a bunch of pigs squealing, and they come running to see what's going on, and they're like, wait, it, aren't you the crazy guy from the cemetery? 
Because you're like dressed. Your hair looks nice. You clean up real good. And you would think that the town would go, hooray. And instead they went, oh, crap. I don't, we're freaking out because, like, that's not how you're supposed to be. All that says to me is they can't deny the transformation. Is that fair to say? They see it. They can't deny it. It probably changed the economy of that town and not in a good way. Because my guess is they sold a lot of bacon, right? And now there's no more pigs. I mean, it says like 2,000 pigs. Jesus told the demons to go to the pigs, and they flew, flew over the cliff. Bad economy right away. An entire region, the Decapolis, was amazed. Verse 20 says this. The man who had been delivered went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people there were amazed. So the people in his hometown who know him see the transformation and get afraid. And then he goes and tells an entire region, and they are amazed. And believe it or not, if you read the Gospels, and you read, you track where Paul went on his missionary journeys. He spent a lot of time in the Decapolis. He had a lot of fruitful ministry there. And I'm just going to guess that some of that fruitful ministry came because this man went and an entire region could not deny the transformation that had taken place in his life. And so when Paul showed up later preaching about some dude named Jesus, they went, that's the dude that made the pigs go over the cliff. We've heard about that because our... This guy came, and he told us about it, and he used to be a crazy man that lived in a cemetery. He used to be addicted to stuff, and now he's not. He was totally set free. What would happen in your life if you were totally set free? What could God do? What could he do with people around you if you didn't have to say things like this? Now, I'm a Christian. I've told you I'm a Christian, you know, and, and, I'm, and no, I'm, no, I know Christians shouldn't do that, and I'm, I'm working on it. What if you could just simply say, Jesus has transformed my life. I used to smoke weed, but I don't anymore. I, I used to get smashed on Saturday nights, but I don't anymore. Oh, really? Are you in some kind of 12-step program? No, it's pretty much one step. Jesus killed me. That was it. And he did, and he transformed me, and I'm different today. Can you imagine what wives would be like if suddenly, the, okay, I'm making this statement about culture, not necessarily about you husbands right here, okay? Can you imagine how wives would be different if suddenly the husbands that went to church with them didn't beat them the rest of the week? I bet those wives would believe a transformation took place, don't you think so? But you know that happens all the time. Can you imagine a transformation? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, we're trying to be real here, but can you imagine what would happen in teenagers' lives if the parents that they sat with every week at church weren't just, like, cussing them out all the time during the week? Can you imagine the transformation that would take place? Hey, um, can you imagine what would happen in parents' lives if the teenagers that they sit next to in church every week, like, made their bed and took out the trash, cleaned the house, said, hey, what else can I do to help you out, Mom and Dad? See what I'm talking about? We want to make this about some huge, just zap me, Jesus, and get rid of the cocaine addiction and get rid of all that. How about if he just wants to kill your pride so that you can serve people? That's called being set free. We're spending a lot of time on debt to liberty. 
But we are, as a culture, addicted. We are. There's mine right there, Swedish fish, great addiction. No, I have worse ones than that. Okay, well, let's do the last one, number three. Death to life. John chapter 11. We're not always familiar with all the stories in the Bible, and um, we're real bad about assuming that people are. John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus dying and Jesus going late to the party to raise him from the dead. I think this is probably the greatest transformation story of them all. I love this story, and here's for a lot of different reasons. One, because Lazarus dies, he's in the tomb for four days. And I learned a couple things from it. Number one, God is not afraid of your circumstances. Um, do you have people in your life who just tell you what you want to hear? Yeah? They never truly really tell you the truth. They just tell you what you want to hear. They don't tell you the bad stuff. God's not like that. He doesn't hide from the bad stuff. If you read John chapter 11 eight times, if you jump down, you can if you want to. Verses 13, 15, 17, 21, 32, 37, 39, 44. Those are your winning lottery numbers right there. Verses 13, 15, 17, 21, 32, 37, 39, 44. If you count it, that's eight times. Eight times in this chapter alone, the Bible clearly says that Lazarus was dead. Some people are really afraid of truth. Right? They try to spin it positively. Oh, no, he's just sleeping. No, he's dead. No, I'm, I'm not overweight. I'm just healthy. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're overweight. I, I'm not out of shape. No, you're out of shape. I'm not ugly. No, you're ugly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes we just try to, we try to spin it. And I, you know, Bill O'Reilly's made a whole living on Fox News saying, you're in the no-spin zone. <laughs> it's like, but you're spinning it. <laughs> like everybody spins everything. Right? I'm not knocking him. I'm just saying everybody spends everything. Jesus didn't spend anything. The Bible doesn't spend anything. God just says this is the way it is. So he didn't say, I don't know if I want to tell them that Lazarus was really dead because that might discourage them. It's like, I don't know how many of you pay your bills this way, but the mail comes and you go and you pull it out and you go, oh, Duke Energy. I don't have the money for that. I just won't open it. Can't pay that. I just won't open it. So you have this huge stack of bills that you owe, but you don't really know how much because you know it's and because you know it's bad. You don't even want to look at the bill, right? I don't know if you can relate to that or not. That's kind of how we react to bad circumstances, but the way God reacts to bad circumstances is He says out loud, plainly. That's a bad circumstance. And I think that's a really important lesson that we learn from this, that God's not afraid of what you think is bad, what you think is impossible. He doesn't hide the truth. You think about addictions we just talked about. Let's just take, for example, that you are in here today and you are addicted to broccoli. 
I'm going to pray for you because that's a terrible thing to be addicted to. But if, you've, if you're in a culture where that's a bad thing, like, I don't want to say it. God's just like, you're addicted to broccoli. Let's just get it out there. That's why I'm not about having elephants in the room. Let's just go ahead and say what they are, right? That's what Jesus does. Eight times, eight times he says that he was dead. God is not afraid of your circumstance. Um, we may not like it, probably won't like it, but the impossibility of your situation is what makes the miracle undeniable. People will see what happens in your life, and they will say, I know you. There's no way you could have pulled that off. That's what makes it undeniable. God's not afraid of your circumstance. He's not afraid when things appear to go wrong. Um, I know some of y'all, and you are fools. You are wrong a lot. I'm wrong a lot. And I read this, and in verse 4, I realized that Jesus was wrong. He said in verse 4, he said this, this sickness will not end in death. He told his disciples that, and then a few days later, they pop on over there to see what's going on, and the disciples heard people saying eight times, Lazarus is dead. And at what point did those disciples look at Jesus and start trying to figure out, wait a second, you said, you said no death, but he's dead. God's not afraid of things when they appear to go wrong. Jesus was willing to appear to play the fool. Because our end is not God's end. He said it wouldn't end in death. He didn't say it wouldn't go there first. Our end is not God's end. And some of you are in places right now where it looks really, really bad. And you're clinging to a promise in Scripture, and everything you're experiencing says the Bible is wrong. There's no way this is, this, I don't see this in my life. He said that I would be the head and not the tail, but boy, I look like the tail right now. And you just got to know that your end is not God's end. He's not done with that circumstance yet. He's still going to work it out. That's what he promised he would do. And he's not afraid of our timetable, even though we are. One last takeaway on this third, this third point. This transformation from death to life, this is the one that drew the line in the sand. If you read the rest of this chapter, you'll find out that this is when people started trying to kill Jesus because of the death to life thing. Some people gave glory to God because Lazarus was raised from the dead, and some other people got together and said, wait a second, we're going to have to kill that guy. This one, it drew a line right in the sand. And some of you are going to experience things in your life you're going to experience this kind of transformation, and you're going to expect people to be all excited about it, and they're not going to be. It might actually make them want to kill you, too. You might get on their nerves now. It'd be great, right? I just want to tell you about Jesus. Hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. And they're going to be like, shut up about Jesus. I can't. Why can't you? Because I used to be dead. I mean, what did Lazarus talk about? What do you think? I don't think he talked about the tomb. It was kind of dark in there. Food was kind of bad. Service was awful. I did not leave a tip. I think he talked about the fact that he was alive. They go, wait, wait, 
didn't you used to be like wrapped up in grave clothes? Yeah, uh, yeah, but look at me now. I'm alive. I'm alive. He probably had a smile on his face that people wanted to slap off because he was changed. It was undeniable. Things to think about. Undeniable transformations come from Jesus, not from us. And I know I've talked a ton. And there's no way you can write all this stuff down. Um, best thing you can do is just go on Facebook and be our friend. Like us at, on Facebook, The Gathering, and the outline will be on there tonight. You just get my whole deal and read it. Undeniable transformations come from Jesus, not from us. This one's huge. They are based in a change of condition, not circumstance. Because circumstances, they change all the time, for good or for bad, sometimes on an hourly basis. Your transformation does not depend on that. It's all about the condition in here. You were dead. You were in debt. You were in darkness, and now you're not. He's changed our condition. When the truth, that truth becomes the bedrock of your soul, your life will impact the people around you. And I just want to say this again. Some of the people around you will love it. And some of the people around you will hate it. And it, it all starts with you saying to Jesus, please, Lord, undeniably transform me. And God, that's what I pray right now that you would do in this place. You know, before we break out food and start eating and, you know, put on the Panthers game and really start to pray hard that they can do well and win. My prayer right now is that you would, you would change us, that you would transform us, Lord. The things in our lives that are much bigger than us, that we feel powerless against, that you would begin to work in those situations, that you would undeniably transform us so that people that don't even know you, that don't even like you, that stand against you, would be speechless because of the change they see in us. That you would mark the gathering as a place of people that are passionate and hungry for you to meet us in our everyday lives, the good and the bad transform us so that we can be like that man of the tombs that left and didn't even go with you he just went back to where he lived and he just told everybody before we go any further I just want to give you the opportunity to be prayed for we've spoken a lot about addictions today and, I, and I'm not look I'm not a counselor I'm not a professional I'm just a guy who loves Jesus and I want to see people set free and I want to I want to get to just to give a moment for us to pray for you if you just say you know what yeah I'm addicted I don't even, I don't even have to know what it's to I don't care what it's to I'm addicted and I need Jesus today to get me out of debt I don't want to be a slave to that addiction any longer and I believe that that's part of what he has planned for today 
And we could do the whole, like, close your eyes and don't look around. But isn't that stupid? Because don't we already know? I mean, the people that are sitting at your table that know you, they're like, dude, this is the time you're supposed to raise your hand. <laughs> they're telling you right now, I'll raise it for you. <laughs> it's not to shame you. It's so that you can just say, hey, this is where I'm at. And it's bigger than me. And I can't fight it anymore. And I don't want to appear to be free. I actually want to be free. And all that comes from just being honest and saying, all right, I admit it. Pray for me. I appreciate that. Anybody else? We're going to pray before we get out of here. I appreciate that. Could anybody else? Yes? Good deal. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Look, we don't want to make people feel awkward and out of place. But I'm going to ask you, do you mind just standing right where you are? You're not going to have to come up here where I am. And we're going to get people just to put hands on you. We're going to lay hands on you. We're going to pray right where you are. I appreciate that. It takes a lot of, takes a lot of courage to admit this. Let's just pray right now. God, in the name of Jesus Christ, we just ask right now that you would do what only you can do. One, God, I pray that you would give us faith to believe you. Because sometimes if we're honest, we don't. Sometimes we start to think things like, well, I've done this a million times and it didn't work before. God, that's not from you. You are a God who gives us the gift of faith to believe you. To believe that when we read about the man in the tombs, that it wasn't just a story way back then, but it's something that you want to write in our lives today. And I pray for everybody that stood up, God, that you would right now begin to work in their lives, in their, in their souls, God, in their spirits. I pray that you would work in their physical bodies, that you would begin to remove the cravings that they have for what they're addicted to. That from this moment forward, God, they would know that you have delivered them. And not only would they know, I pray that you would do such a God thing in their lives that their families, the people that know them the best, would, and, and typically are the ones that want to throw out all the failure first, that the families would be speechless and amazed at what you do right now. We ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.